tonight I'd like to introduce Larry Dwyer. Uh, I've known Larry for probably more years than he or I would like to remember, but we've had the pleasure of working on some mutual clients, and uh, I greatly respect Larry's uh, intelligence and, and, uh, and the way he can handle estate tax issues. Uh, he's a graduate of Creighton University here in Omaha and uh, has been practicing estate law in the Omaha area for several years. Just a few years, right, Larry? 38 years. <laughs> so um, without it, my taking any more time, uh, Larry, please come. And uh, I don't know if you want to entertain uh, questions from the floor, if you'd sure. like to wait till the end. I'd rather wait till the end, okay. if that's okay. Any questions you have, I'm glad. I just mentioned before I started that uh, any actual law that I talk about tonight, should be a lot, uh, is going to be based on Nebraska law. And uh, part of the problem, if you listen uh, to uh, some television personalities like uh, Susie Orman, I hope I'm not, I'm not committing slander here as long as it's being taped, uh, they have um, the tendency to tell you they're all from California or New York. And when we were in law school back in 1974 when I graduated, they used to say, well, here's the federal court majority opinion, and here's Nebraska's opinion, and here's what 48 states do, and then here's California and New York. <laughs> so we just were basically taught to ignore those people. Uh, so most of the stuff that you hear, unfortunately, is incorrect if you get it from television or even, I hate to say this, Kiplinger's tax letter. Some of the, Now, maybe not the tax issues, but... When they get into guardianships, conservatorships, trust, certain benefits, uh, we don't have too many things in this country that are still a state phenomena, state-governed. Uh, but, but probate law and estate planning guardianship is. So what's true in Nebraska is not necessarily true in Iowa or uh, with Jim's sister in Colorado. For just one little example, just so I don't get off the track, uh, if, we're, if you're going to do a living trust, in Nebraska, you would, uh, and you wanted to put your home into your trust, the deed would say uh, Mary Smith and, and Harry Smith, husband and wife, trustees of the Mary and, and Harry Smith trust. So the word trustee would come before the name of the trust. In South Dakota and in Colorado, it's the exact opposite. And if you don't do it correctly, you can run into title problems at death, well, what's that mean? They have to be corrected. Where are they going to be corrected? In court. So you're back in probate court, and you did a living trust to avoid probate. So those little nuances are enough that we used to do law in Iowa and Kansas, Missouri. As long as the people came to us, we could do it. I don't touch it anymore just because there's so many variations. Uh, well, in an inheritance tax, I'm not going to talk about too much death tax. I'll leave that to, to Dave, the expert. Uh, Nebraska charges 1% for children over $40,000. Iowa's free for kids. Uh, Nebraska charges 1% for grandparents. Iowa is 15%. So you see what I mean? The variances are so much that where we may want to do something uh, for an Iowa resident, we may say is not necessary to do it here in Nebraska or vice versa. In Kansas, South Dakota, Missouri, there is no inheritance tax. So all of these things are variations. So everything I'm going to tell you tonight, unless I say it's federal, is Nebraska. 
So I hope there's nobody here. If you are from Iowa, you need to see an Iowa attorney. If you're from Colorado, you need to see a Colorado attorney, uh, and that'll help. Tonight, I'm going to talk uh, for about an hour, and then I'll take questions and answers. And uh, it's going to be kind of a primer on uh, Christian stewardship and estate planning. And like uh, I was telling Dave, I've been practicing for 38 years. I started as a criminal lawyer and then found uh, I wasn't too good at that. Tried uh, doing, <laughs> doing personal injury trial work, found I wasn't too good at that. And so kind of stumbled into estate planning and probate and kind of found my niche. But it's, uh, it's an area that I really enjoy, and I feel that it's, it gets into elder law, and I feel that it can really almost be a ministry in the way you can help people in planning their estates and dealing with end-of-life issues. Um, I've given over 200 continuing education seminars for the state of Nebraska. Uh, we're doing another one in November uh, for lawyers, stockbrokers, uh, accountants, whatever. Um, so what I've taken is from, uh, I've written seven books on estate planning. What I've done is I've taken excerpts, and yesterday I put this together. I'm going to give you a handout uh, that will just give you an overview on a, some estate planning issues. But I wanted to start with um, what is Christian stewardship. And when I had the, the honor of speaking here back in August uh, to the church, I talked uh, totally about Christian stewardship. Um, and I didn't tell the story then, but I'm going to tell this story. I, I really like it. A minister went out to uh, one of his members of his uh, church, went out to his home, and they had a wonderful dinner and good fellowship. And then the homeowner said, I want to take you outside. I want to show you everything I own. So he said, now look, as far as you can see to the north, and you see all those oil wells, those are mine. They're all mine. And you turn to the east and see all the uh, orchards. And as far as you can see, those are all mine. And turn to the south and see all the corn wheat fields and acreage and acreage of corn. It's all mine as far as the eye can see. And you go in this direction and you see all the wheat fields and the livestock. It's all mine. Everything you see as far as the eye can go in 360 degrees is all mine. I've earned it. I've worked for it. And everything, I, everything you can see is mine. And the minister kind of paused for a minute. And then he looked up and he says, do you have any treasures up there? And so we get back to what Jesus said in, in Matthew. Um, I've got to put on my reading glasses. Matthew 6, verse 19 to 20. And this was really interesting. He says, uh, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's interesting to me about that is it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus uses the word don't. So... Christian stewardship is not an option if we're a believer. Uh, it's a responsibility. It's an obligation. Uh, we talk about uh, giving of your time, talent, and treasure. And we talk about tithing. Uh, the norm that where I come from at Cathedral is 5% to your parish and 5% to other charities. And then upon death, uh, the same way. Tithing, and tithing in your will or your trust or through your IRAs or life insurance that we'll talk about tonight. 
It's a way to recognize uh, the basic premises, unlike the man in our story, that we don't own anything. In fact, uh, if you really believe in Christian stewardship, you will believe that we're just stewards of our property. We don't own the property. And we're going to talk about that in, in, a, in a moment. Um, and then I spoke that Sunday. I said, if you awoke one morning and realized you had lost everything you owned, your home, land, crops, animals, buildings, cars, clothes, even your children, could you honestly say and believe in your heart what Job said? Job fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job wasn't a victim. He knew he came into this world like you and I with nothing. It was taken from him suddenly, unexpectedly. He didn't like it. It wasn't any fun to go through. But he recognized it was all from God and there must be a reason. In Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus again warns his disciples to understand, quote, Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Seek first for the Father's kingdom. So, before we start talking about wills and trust and taxes and charitable giving, I think each of us has to uh, ask ourselves, what's our dearest and most important and valued possession? What do we treasure the most? If you lost everything and all you had left was your faith in Jesus, would you be satisfied? Would you feel full? Would you feel complete? Or would you feel, woe is me, poor, poor, pitiful me? Why is everybody against me? Why doesn't God love me? So this concept of Christian stewardship is someone is really a base is based on faith, and that consists of four elements. First, a Christian steward is a person who receives God's gifts gratefully. So we're a thankful people. Second, a person who cherishes and tends them in a responsible manner. So do you think, you, I have clients, you probably have friends, family member. Do you think cherishing and tending possessions and spending two hours before you go to work in the morning over at the casino is, goes hand in hand? Is that a good Christian steward? Probably not. Third, you share them in justice and love with the church and with neighbor. You know, it's hard for a rich person to get to heaven. But God didn't say rich people weren't in heaven. He just said that rich people have more of a tendency to gravitate towards more, more, me, me. I mean, there's plenty of examples of rich people who I think are probably in heaven. Abraham was the greatest landowner of his day. I think Abraham's probably in heaven. Uh, Job certainly was the richest man on earth. I think Job's in heaven. Uh, Lydia dealt in purple dyes. She was extremely wealthy. Remember Lydia? Um, James and John were uh, sons of the largest fishing company in, the, in Galilee, right? Zebedee's uh, family fishing. Um, 
uh, we have, oh, my favorite character. Anybody that's been in Martin's Bible study know this guy, Barnabas. <laughs> Barnabas was the biggest landowner in the island of Cyprus. What did Barnabas do? He gave it to the church. Mark, uh, we think his mother probably had um, the, uh, where the uh, Last Supper and where a lot of the meetings of the early church probably took place. Uh, they may have owned the wine gro- or the olive grove where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Um, we're not sure on some of those things. Luke was a physician. Do you know any poor doctors? <laughs> Do you notice in all this list I didn't say a lawyer? I don't think, I don't know why. Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, what? That's as close as we get. Zacchaeus. So uh, a Christian steward is someone who shares. And not out of begrudging, remember, a cheerful giver does it in justice and love. And then finally, returns the gifts back to God with increased. So receives, cherishes, shares, and returns. Now you get your hand up. You like my cover? <laughs> you see the see the man that's sitting at the gate, yeah. the pearly gates, with the U-Haul. <laughs> what about my stuff? Can I take it with me? I heard about this from um, Billy Graham, one of his crusades. And there's a slogan that he used in one of his crusades, there is no U-Haul following the hearse. Okay, if you want to turn to the uh, second page where we start with applying Christian stewardship to estate planning. And I'll summarize these things for you. So I just want that for you to take it home. You know, the first thing you got to decide is what's an estate. Well, a state is anything that's subject to rights and interests and ownership. So when you think of the word estate, you can interchange assets, resources, property. We usually lose uh, finances. We usually use the term property. Okay? So that's what an estate is. What happens with that estate when you die? Well, like we said, uh, the person that's standing at the gate had that same question. What about all my stuff? Do you know how I actually got started in uh, doing estate planning? I was at the University of Nebraska at Omaha before I went to law school. And if I hadn't become a lawyer, I would have been a college history teacher. And I was taking a course in British constitutional law. And our professor was Dr. Stanley Trickett, who also happened to be the pre-law advisor. And he is one of the great mentors in my life that steered me to law. And... Uh, he said, I want to give you a book to read. And it was written by an English novelist by the name of Nora Lofts. How many, you know, I'm a voracious reader, and I'll read a lot of books multiple times. I would imagine I've read this book probably ten times. It's a story about a home in uh, Lancashire, England, and one of these Downton Abbey type of homes, if you ever watched that on Masterpiece Theater. And it's a story from the perspective of the home. And uh, the homeowners come and the homeowners die. But the house remains. 
It starts in the 1600s and it brings you up to World War II and the house is still there. How many owners have, has it had? So he says it's important if you're going to do estate planning for people to understand they really don't own anything. Unlike our man in our story who pointed everything he owns, uh, he probably had a lot of taxes for all that livestock and land and oil. Imagine if you don't pay your income taxes. The, IRA, the government's slow, but within five years, they'll come and get your house. If you don't pay your mortgage, probably six months to a year, but they'll come and get your house. If you don't pay your car loan, you'll probably have your car repossessed. So, you know, even if you think you're debt-free, um, that house isn't going to, is going to be there past uh, whatever time that, that you have on earth. The house that uh, my family lives in that was near where Carol grew up in the cathedral area was built in the 1880s. And uh, my brother still lives there. And one of the things that my brother, because neither one of us has children, worry about is what's going to happen to the family home. You know, we're into almost 130 years of ownership. And it's kind of sad. And so we've decided to give it to Cathedral. So that that way the house will stay. It'll be used for retreats or it can be used for visiting teachers or whatever. But at least we feel we've given the house to somebody who will take care of it. So you do have that draw. So I, I kind of understand about that picture because I also collect books. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my 5,000 library? So you do worry about those things. Uh, so it's, it's important for me to do these talks because I remind myself, you know, I can't take it with me. Um, maybe it would be better as Christians, like I said, to say we don't own property. We're just stewards of the property. That picture down there, for all the continuing ed seminars, you know, and I've got to talk for eight hours. My wife came because I wrote the books, and she would sell the books one time when my secretary was sick. And she sat in the back for eight hours and listened to me talk. And uh, she said, you know, you're a good speaker, but gosh, eight hours <laughs> is a long time to listen to you. She says, couldn't you, couldn't you have some pictures or couldn't you have some show and tell? So as a result... I sent my secretary to uh, Metro, and she went to learn about how to draw pictures on the computer. This was back in the 80s. So you're going to get the benefit of some of the pictures. And this was the day days before PowerPoint, so uh, we just gave handouts. Pr property, the second thing, as long as you understand what the term is, it's, it's important that you understand everybody owns property, even if you live in a nursing home. If you're on Medicaid, you still own something. And that's important because that means you are eligible for doing estate planning. Only There was only one time survey done. It was done by um, the American Bar Association in 1980. I've always wanted to replicate it and see what it would come out to today. And it said, how many people have done a will? or a living trust, some type of estate planning legal document. They found, this is just in America, only 25% had. How many people in this room have a will? Oh, my gosh. This is unbelievable. When I did that at the Sunday service, it was at least 70%. I was just so impressed. I'll do, them, I'll do these seminars with lawyers, and the lawyers don't have their own wills. So you're really an impressive group. Really, I'm really proud of you. Um, 
But what are the reasons that people gave why they didn't do a will? First, misunderstanding. I don't need a will because I'm too poor. I've got a mortgage. I've got car loans. You know, I've got kids going to college. So I don't need a will. Misunderstanding. Second reason was procrastination. Farmers say, I'll come and see you, Larry, in January after harvest. Teachers say, I'll come and see you in the summer after school's done. Right? Uh, nurses say, uh, after I get through my three 12-hour days, I'll take a nap and come and see you. So there's always an excuse for why you don't want to go and do it. Um, the third reason, fear of death. For people who don't know the Lord, and this is where, in my practice, it gives me an opportunity to, to share the Lord. Without, I have to be careful of crossing the line. But when somebody get, just gets dragged in there by their spouse because they just have been notified they got terminal cancer or one of their spouses died suddenly and now their kids are saying, Dad, you got to do something. And they don't want to come in here. They're not smiling. They're not happy to see me. I'd rather go see a dentist than to come and see you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's an old uh, story that Jerry Seinfeld said that most people would rather give the eulogy uh, at the funeral uh, than attend the funeral and have to f come face to face with their own sense of mortality. Um, it's, it's very difficult for a lot of people who don't know the Lord because this is it. This is all I have. So it's a great opportunity. Uh, I don't have time to tell you a story about a lady that called me as a client of mine. Uh, maybe I will tell the story because it, the Lord just gave it to me. It's really a neat, true story. And... Um, well, I'll call her Mary. She was born and raised in Lithuania, and uh, they escaped. Uh, uh, she was a Jew, and they, she and her husband escaped uh, Hitler and came to America and settled in New York City, where her husband was uh, a doctor, and she was a linguist. And she had a master's degree, but because she spoke five languages fluently, including Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian, uh, those Baltic state dialects and Russian, uh, a, a famous university in upstate New York hired her without a Ph.D. just because of her talents. And then her husband died. And uh, she converted while they were there and became uh, Episcopalians. And that was the thing to do in this particular Ivy League school. And so that she said that was no problem because we felt safer, to be honest. They, we didn't know if America would welcome Jews as a as was happening in Europe. Uh, and they enjoyed church. They enjoyed their relationships. But then when he died, she fell away. Her sorrow, she didn't have anything to fall back on. And she had left her Jewish cultural community back in Lithuania, so she didn't feel she could go back to her roots here in America. So she felt, I was kind of in no man's land. And uh, then she got diagnosed with cancer. And her son, who lives here in Omaha, said, Mom, why don't you come out here and live with us? And she did. And he said to me one day, he was a client of mine, would you see my mom and help her out with her estate plan? I did. And we just hit it off right away because of our love of literature and history and traveling. And we just had a great time. And uh, we did everything, got everything done for her. I didn't see her for two years. Came back, made a little change. Then I didn't see her for three more years. Finally, she called me and she says, uh, I've got to go do a quadruple bypass surgery on Monday morning. 
and with my diabetes and a few of the other issues, uh, I just want to make sure my house is in order. And I said, okay, let me, let me go get your file out of storage. Went and got it, called her back in a few minutes. I said, let's go over everything, your power of attorney, your health care. Is this still your wishes? Uh, you still want to be buried in, back in New York, cremated rather, with your husband? Yes. And all these types of things, open to organ donation if needed at the time, yes. Everything is in your trust. We're all funded. There isn't anything sitting out there that we have to go through probate. No. Okay. After about a half hour, I says, uh, I feel fine. I think there's no change as needed. She says, I feel so much better. Uh, and I says, uh, she says, it's just really important to me that my house is in order because I could die. I just have this feeling I could die. So I crossed the line and I said, well, how's your house spiritually? How's your prayer life? And I thought that was an innocuous question. And she says, well, to be frank, I've been away from the church for so long, I don't know. And I says, well, why don't you pray? I don't know how to pray. I've kind of forgotten how to pray. So I said, why don't you read Psalm 95? Because we had just been studying this in our little our group. Um, and I said, it really it touched me, the word, Come. And I said, maybe the Lord is just calling you to come back to him. Why don't you just read Psalm 95 and see if it helps? That's all I said. And that I said, i got to go home now. It's time to have lunch. And uh, so it, this was Friday. I said, give me a call over the weekend if you want. Be glad to talk to you. Call me at home. She called me back about 4 o'clock that same day. And she says, my gosh. She said, I read Psalm 95. I've read it six times. And she says, I just feel the Lord is uh, calling me. What should I do? I said, just say, Lord, I'm here. You know, whatever you want, I'm here for you. I, I ask forgiveness for any of my sins, and please come into my life. He's been in your life before, just he's still there. You walked away. He didn't. She says, really? I says, yeah, you don't have to go found, find him. Just put yourself in a position and open up. And just, what should I read? I said, I would read the Psalms. And if Psalm 95 is, is ministering to you, just keep reading it over and over. And whatever words the Lord speaks to you, say, thank you, Lord. I accept them. Great. I, get a, I said, I'll pray for you on Monday. I get a call about 5 o'clock Monday afternoon from her son saying she died uh, on the operating table. She knew. Yeah. And so the funeral was held the following Saturday, and they didn't have a church, and she didn't want to be in a church, uh, or was too soon to go again. So they held it at the community center in a retirement village where she was had moved to. And uh, what do you think the song was? She, she wrote out a little note that she said to her son, you do whatever you want, make it a joyful funeral, because I'm with the Lord. But uh, I don't want too much preaching or... You know, these people are, are friends of mine, and just, just have a happy time, a lot of food, and just keep it short and simple. But there's two things I want you to do. I want you to sing and ask the preacher to preach on Amazing Grace. And then secondly, I want you to read Psalm 95. And the preacher should say, come. Now, that is just a great example of... An individual who came back to the Lord because she recognized her property, 
her things wasn't the primary importance. What initiated the phone call was, I want my house in order. I'm worried about all this stuff. But then when she, her heart was tugging her the other way. So that little cell was still there. The Lord still had it there. And, and she reached out and accepted it. Uh, it's a great example. I unfortunately have friends, and you probably do too, that are just the opposite. No matter what tragedy or they're faced with, it just doesn't seem that they can, they can ever come back to the Lord. And those are the ones that, you know, hardness of heart or, or some, somehow they've been hurt at some time or wounded that you just pray for and, and hope and you plant some seeds that the Lord will, will uh, forgive them and that they'll maybe turn at the last minute like Dismas did, the good thief. Um, this picture makes you understand the types of property there are. Some people will say, when I'll ask this question, do you have any property? And and person in the front row, I always pick on them in the front row, say doesn't raise their hand. And I'll say, why don't you raise your hand? Well, I don't own any real estate. Well, how did you get here? Well, I drove. Oh, you have a car. And do you live in the street? Oh, no. I, I, ha- I rent an apartment. So do you have chairs in your apartment? Do you have a bed in your apartment? Well, yeah. I noticed the ring on your finger. Oh, yeah, your coat. Everybody owns something. And this just explains the aspects of real estate and then personal property. So you'll see those terms used a lot. And, you know, in the, in the wills, you'll see the old-fashioned phrase, I give, devise, and bequeath. Well, devise was the old um, uh, term from English common law for giving real estate. And bequeath was the term for giving personal property. Today, we don't need those terms. All you need to say is, I give. We still use them, but those, those had specific meaning. You'll see property on personal is tangible or intangible. Tangible property is stuff that's in this room, stuff you can physically touch. Uh, your chair, it has utilitarian value. If you had to stand here and listen to me, it's okay for me to stand, but if you had to stand and listen to me for an hour, you probably wouldn't enjoy it as much. It's nice to have a chair where you can rest, but you can't take that chair to Baker's and buy your groceries with it, can you? It has a utilitarian value. Uh, this is stuff, this is, these are items we call our stuff. Uh, the number one thing, if you're going to be a good Christian steward, when we do your wills or trust, we always tell you, we'll do what you want, but we're going to throw in some things that should help with your legacy. What's your legacy? Well, your legacy is so that what you do or fail to do in your estate plans doesn't cause your heirs to fight. Now, what do you think? In 38 years of doing this, over 2,000 probates, what do you think the number one thing that families fight over? Hmm? Stuff. Stuff. You've been in my office. You see the, the family pictures. I probably shared with you the story. And my grandfather, when he came from Ireland, uh, is pictured where the pancake house is located on 45th and Dodge. That was our original home in 1875. And in the background of this picture, you can see Saddle Creek when it was actually a creek. This is a fabulous historic picture. And I have it in my wall. It's 8 by 10. Okay, it came from a tin dagger type, the size of a cigarette package. Well, that dagger type has value in and of itself. Well, fortunately, we have, I just have a brother and sister, and we don't 
fight. There's no issues. And fortunately, a new organization after my dad died called One Hour Photo was available that wasn't available when I started practicing in 74. And we could take that tintype, and the picture in my office at 8 by 10 is much better and clearer and sharper, and I'd rather have that than the tintype. But when I first started practicing, the tintypes would lead to family disputes. One of the biggest fights I ever had was an individual who was on Medicaid. I grew up with the family in Cathedral. I knew all of the kids. They were all adults. And what did they end up fighting? One of the kids was uh, a CPA lawyer. Just brilliant. Another one was an executive of business. And I wa there was no need for a probate. But they, two of the three kids, went to court and filed a lawsuit over one item, two items. And they couldn't agree on anything, and so the judge appointed me to be, in effect, a referee. And I said, I really don't want to get into this because I know the entire family. And he says, that's why I'm appointing you. Yeah. And it, it was uh, three, three items, I'm sorry, a box of family photos, a tin box, actually a really cheap tin box of costume jewelry, and a board game called Pokino. Now, if you're old enough, Pokina was a combination of bingo and poker. I'm not sure, something like that. I, I learned how to play it. It's a fun game. And uh, each one of them ha hired their own lawyer. And I used to office on 120th and Center, and we had an office that was uh, what you could go out one way, the front door, and you'd be in a parking lot, and then go out the back door and be in a different parking lot. And so the three lawyers said the, the kids aren't even talking to each other. There's so much animosity. So we set up a time on a Saturday morning where one lawyer and one kid came in the front door. We went into the conference room. I sat there and read the newspaper, and I'm getting paid. Uh, easiest money in the world. Why, that lawyer and that person went through the costume jewelry and the pictures, and then they put, they, we had a color system so the other ones wouldn't know what they picked, and then would, would write it down what they wanted, and then it, Five minutes to, they would come in at eight, five minutes to nine. They would go out the front door, and the other person would be waiting in the back door to come in at nine, and we'd do the same thing until all three were done. And um, the Pocino game is still in my possession. <laughs> this, this was in 1985. So in one of the safes in our office is the Pocino game. What was the importance of the Pocino game? Their father was in World War II, came home from the war, and was with them when they were in grade school. And, what they were, and then he went off to the Korean War. He was one of those poor guys that had to be both wars and was killed in the Korean War. So he, he makes five years of World War II and then dies in Korea. What do they remember from grade school? This is what our dad played with us. So I even suggested to all of them, I will buy you each a Pocino game. But no, they wouldn't. All three have died. And the judge is dead. I don't know what to do with this Pocino game. I, I think you inherited it. <laughs> anyway, do you see what, you know, I, I, I wish she would have decided. If she would have done a will and decided who got, she probably wouldn't have just picked who was going to get the Pocino game. Who's eligible for estate planning? Everyone. Um, the story of Luke. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. 
He saw a certain poor widow putting in two small copper coins. He said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. That's the story of the widow's might. Years ago, a 94-year-old widow, he lived in a nursing home, wanted to do a will uh, and be a good Christian steward of her very small possessions, which consisted of some clothes, a tattered King James Bible, a hymn book that she had used for 50 years as the music director at her small Baptist church, less than $2,000 in her checking account, a rocking chair, and her 110-year-old wedding ring, which had been passed on to her from her mother and before that from her grandmother. Her lawyer said, you're on Medicaid, you're too poor, you don't need a will. The director of the nursing home was my client, and she called me and she said, Aunt Gert really wants a will, her lawyer won't do it, and would you come down as a favor to me? I'll pay you out of my own pocket. And because she has something she really wants to include in her will. And uh, I says, I'd be glad to. I called the lawyer first. I said, as a courtesy, I don't want to take business from you. He said, there is no business there. I said, okay, because I'm going to go down and do it. She was just a sweetheart, one of my all-time favorite clients, and I only met her two times. Why did she want to do a will? She said, because this ring means the most to me in my life other than my faith. Why is that ring important? Because my grandmother gave it to my mother, and my mother gave it to me, and it, mean, it means our heritage. Who do you want it to go to? I want it to go to my great-niece, who lives here. This is a small town outside of Omaha, who, who lives here and comes and sees me almost every day. She takes care of me. I have nothing to give her. She does it just to the love of her heart. But if I don't give it to her, I'm afraid my nieces in California, who don't even send me a Christmas card and I haven't heard from in 30 years, would get it. Isn't that true? I said, well, yeah, if they hear about you dying and do, sure, they would have priority because she comes after in the next of kin. Well, where is your, your husband's dead? Yes. Did you have any children? I had one child. Uh, where is he? Well, he lives in Phoenix, Arizona. He's wealthy. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't want the ring because he doesn't have any girls in his family. And he said, I would rather you give it to your great niece also, who is his cousin, because she's been so good to you. He says, Mom, I don't want anything. And so she said, I said, well, that's okay. So we did the will. And I said to her, now, Aunt Gert, I gotta, I've, I've given your King James Bible, all these things to the great niece. I said, now, who are we going to give all your vast fortune to? And she laughed, and she says, I don't even know if I have anything in the bank. Well, Medicaid doesn't allow you more than $4,000. She had two. And I says, well, what do you want to do with that? And uh, she, I says, let's play a game. Let's say that you were to win the, the lottery. No, I don't play the lottery. Well, how, how about if you win a big fortune playing bingo today? And she says, oh, she laughed. I said, no, just play the game. Where would you like everything else to go? I want half to go to my church because I was never able in life to give them very much. My husband died young, and I gave them my time and my talent. She was the organist. They need some new hymnals. They need a new organ. Okay, I'd like to give half to my church and half to my great niece. I said, great. So we did what's called the residuary clause, and it's really important when you do your wills or your trust 
that you take time to think of that residuary clause. And if the lawyer doesn't prod you and tell, I like to tell stories to kind of get you thinking and do what ifs so that you understand we can do whatever you want to do if you'll just think about it. There's lots of choices. And so she played the game with me. Two months later, I get a call from the great niece saying, you won't believe it, we got a letter from a lawyer in Phoenix saying that Ann Gert's son died in a car accident. And he wanted to know if, if Ann Gert was still alive. And yeah, I'll put her on the phone. And yeah. And he says, uh, well, I'm going to be sending you a letter, and you have inherited uh, part of your son's estate. And uh, so do you have a will? Yeah, I just did a will. And he says, well, you may want to redo it. And so um, we didn't know what it was or how much. He says, there's no requirement other than, than five days that you survived, and you survived that. So she says, well, I'm 94. And he says, it's going to take a little while because we have some property that we have to sell down here. But as long as you have a will, it'll go if you don't survive. She said, great. So the great niece called me and says, uh, do you want to come down? Ain't Gert like to see you again? So I went back down. I said, uh, Gert, do you want to change your will? No, I just want to make sure that half goes to my church and half goes to my great niece and that my nieces in California don't get anything. I said, no, it's all taken care of. And I had put a clause in. I knowingly and intentionally omit all of my nieces and nephews and all this and that from taking or receiving, not out of any lack of love or affection, but because I prefer to leave it to my church and to my great niece for her acts of kindness. So it's a gentle way to disinherit someone, and that's sufficient as long as you have the word knowingly, intentionally omitted. Six months later, Aunt Gert died. I wrote the letter to the lawyer and said, she's died, and are you sure this doesn't change? He said, no. She survived by five days. And he says, uh, did she really do a will? Everything's in order? I says, yeah, oh, yeah, we're going to open an estate. So we got the estate open, got the great niece appointed as executor, and we waited. And it, this I don't remember the exact time, another eight months. Maybe it was a year and a half total. And we get a check for a million dollars. Her son had been in, in a bad accident a number of years before and had got a very good settlement and had bought some real estate in Phoenix, Tempe area, and that was later bought out and became the Fiesta Bowl. So he had left most of his money to uh, his kids and to some charities in Phoenix, but had left her a million dollars. Now, where did that million dollars go? For this little old lady who owned a King James Bible, a rocker, she had a, one of these old shawls that she had made. You know, she had knitted. It was just, it was colorful. It looked like, I said, gosh, that reminds me of something. And she says, do you read your Bible? And I says, well, yeah. She says, it's Joseph's coat. All the colors. She had designed it perfectly. It was just beautiful. And so she's sitting in her rocking chair, you know, just a sweet little lady that's ready to go to the Lord whenever he calls her. So what did the church do? 500000 went to the church, 500000 went to the great niece. Well, first we had to re reimburse Medicaid for the amount of money they had paid for her, and that was about $60,000. Okay, what did the church do? This was a small little church, a little Baptist church. This was the largest bequest they had ever received. And they couldn't believe when I called them, 
are you talk are we talking about the same person and because uh, she couldn't give us much during life but her talents and I said yes they took that money and bought new hymnals and they put inside gift from Gert the estate of and that was smart because it told other people you can give a gift in your will secondly instead of fixing the organ they went out and splurged and bought a new organ and there's a beautiful brass plaque and commemorating her 50 years of leading the choir and playing the organ. So they just didn't say her name. They just they wrote a nice little testimony about her. And then they built an addition to their church, uh, a 20 by 30 room for senior citizen activities. And named it the Gertrude Blank Hall. These people really knew. And then you know what they did? They gave 10% of what she gave to a charity in their town for battered uh, women and children. I mean, so that, they gave a tithe. They, they asked, who was the lawyer that did this? They gave me my name. All of a sudden, I get a call from this little shelter, and they said, this is a godsend. You don't know what this money means to us. This is the largest bequest we have ever received. Where did it come from? It came from a church. Who would, do you see, this, this gift. Now then, what did the great niece do with her money? She gave a tithe, $50,000, to her church. And she gave a second tithe to uh, a missionary f- fund. I don't remember the name of the fund. Kind of like, uh, what's the one that Lindsay's involved in? YWAM. It's a group like that, or Campus Crusade. It's a group in Oklahoma. To help young kids that want to go be missionaries. So I get letters from that group. What did I do? All I asked is, Gert, if you win at bingo, <laughs> what do you want to see done with your money? <laughs> she wanted bingo. And do you know how much I charged to do it? She would not do it for free. So I charged her $20. Because she insisted, and her great niece says, you've got to charge her. She doesn't understand fees. So I said, 20 is that enough? Well, yeah, I can get you $20. She just felt she wanted to give me something. Uh, of course, I got paid doing the probate, so I was taken care of. But that gift that she gave to her church, which her church gave to the battered woman, and the great niece gave to her church, a different church, and gave to... The missionaries, it's just like that, that little rabbit commercial just keeps giving and giving. Isn't that amazing? The energizing bunny. This is what charitable giving can lead to. It's like you, you cannot outdo the generosity of the Lord. And just think of all the countless people. Think of all the women and children who have been abused and are now going to get special care because of this gift that some 94-year-old widow on Medicaid gave, indirectly. Isn't that a cool story? Um, that's Aunt Gert's story. So who has an estate? Everybody. Who is eligible for estate planning? Everybody. There is no exceptions. Now, here's your choice. Do you want to do your own estate plan, or do you want to do the state of Nebraska to do one for you? 
Now, if I would have had at least one of you that didn't raise your hand, I could have picked on you. And when I did this, when I did this talk for a group of lawyers two years ago, one of my buddies is sitting in the front row, and I'm not going to say his name. Dave would know him. And he didn't raise his hand. He's kind of his head down. And I said, Bob, what the heck's wrong with you? And he says, well, I'm a divorce lawyer. I says, even more reason. And he says, and then somebody knew Bob and says, your wife's been telling you what's wrong. We were picking on Bob. And, and uh, I said, Bob, I'm going to ask one more question, and I want to see you raise your hand. Do you have a will? Larry, I don't have a will. I promise. I'm not lying to you. I says, you do have a will. Please don't lie to your teacher. <laughs> well, what do you mean? I says, well, if you remember from law school years ago when you took the one course on wills and trust, <laughs> the state has a will for you. So there's a default plan. So you're the smart people because you've decided you want to do things the way you want to and protect your loved ones and your friends and your charities and appoint the people you want to appoint and make those decisions yourself. That's what a Christian steward does. This is a great group. I can preach at you. i got to be, you know, when I'm in the general public, I'd, I'd say, now this is what a good steward of their property is. Uh, but isn't that true? You know, you, do, you work hard to accumulate property because there's three steps of, of property. Accumulation, and how do we accumulate it? Well, we do it through our earnings. Or we may inherit something. We make good investments. Uh, we may get it indirectly because we were injured by the negligence of someone else in a personal injury case. But somehow or another, we accumulate property. And then what do we do? We hopefully, we protect it. And we're going to talk a little about that, and Quigley will be talking more on that on insurance and investments. And then third, we have the privilege of providing for its distribution. So accumulation, protection, distribution. A Christian steward is someone who partakes of all three and understands all three and wants to make the decisions as a good steward would do. So the state of Nebraska's plan says that if you die without a will, you die intestate. If you die with a will, it's called testate. That's why it's your last will and testament. Uh, testament, the word testament in Old English is really means covenant. It's really almost a testimony. If you ever get to Mount Vernon and you see George Washington's will, it says, in the name of God, amen. Um, I really like the old way they used to do it. And, uh, but it was a testament, a covenant, a recognition that it came from God. George Washington will, his will is spectacular for understanding where he got everything and that he's just acting responsibly as a good steward. The state of Nebraska says that if you are a surviving spouse and you, your spouse died without a will or a trust, then it depends on who survives the decedent. Uh, if there is no survive, where you see the word issue, that's children. So uh, if there's no surviving children and no parent of the deceased, then the spouse in Nebraska is going to get 100%. Again, this is Nebraska. Nebraska protects surviving spouses more than any state in America. Most states will only give a surviving spouse one-third. Nebraska, if you notice, 100%. The worst scenario for a spouse at the bottom, 50%. And that's only if there's kids 
by a previous marriage. So if, if this is your second marriage, and maybe you this is your first marriage, but your husband was married before and had a couple of kids, and those kids survived, so they're not your kids, then those kids are going to get half his previous marriage children, and you as a surviving spouse is going to get half. That's the worst scenario in Nebraska for a surviving spouse. That's pretty good. The other scenarios are no surviving children, but you're survived by a parent. You get the first $100,000 and one half of the balance. That was just changed a year ago from 50000 And then uh, if you're survived by children, all of whom are the children of the decedent, so they're all mom's kids too, if mom survives, then again, the first 100000 and one half of the balance. Now, what happens if both spouses are dead? We're talking about there's other heirs. Then it's degree of kinship. The first is children. The second is parents. The third is siblings, nieces, and nephews. The fourth is grandparents. The fifth is cousins. And the sixth, Emmanuel Fellowship? No. Salvation Army? No. Your golfing buddy? No. The state of Nebraska. Horrible. That's why I always like to have people, you know, especially if you don't have kids, even have a, have a bottom. You know, if everybody else that I've left everything to is gone, just a horrific bus accident heading to a Nebraska football game and all of me and all my cousins are killed, leave it to a charity just as a fallback. You know, if you've got 10 kids and 50 grandkids, I don't worry about that. But if you're like me that has no kids, it's a concern. So we have a number of charities as fallback just because, not that I don't want, like my state, but I would rather have it go to Open Door Mission or South, wouldn't you? So that's, uh, that's the state's plan. Now, what are the components of an estate plan? Well, the first and probably the most misunderstood is titling of property. Um, you all have signed contracts. And when you bought a car, you got a car title. That's a contract between you and uh, Greg Young or H&H &H Chevrolet. That's a legal contract. Whoever's name is on that car with your name gets it. So if you have five kids and you and your wife put your name and your wife's name and one of your kids' name on that car title... And your will says everything after the death of my wife goes to my five kids equally. Who's getting the car? That one kid. Yeah. Does that affect her share of the rest of the estate? Does that mean she gets less? Not unless there's a specific clause in the will that says so. And most lawyers forget to do it. And most people don't even ask about it. It's called an equalization clause or a pre-advancement clause. So therefore, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. If I've got a client who's got six kids and they all live in Timbuktu and New York and everywhere else, and you've got a daughter that lives here and she's the one that's going to take you to the doctor and she does all this extra stuff, it doesn't bother me if you give her a car or if you make a CD and have it POD to her and she gets an extra 10000 You know, if the other brother and sisters begrudge that, well, pox on them, huh? <laughs> so so that's, it doesn't mean it's a mistake, but a lot of people will do this and they don't understand what they've done. Uh, a deed to a house is a contract. Uh, a, a certificate of deposit at the bank. When you sign your signature card for your checking account, your savings accounts, your certificate of deposits, those are all contracts. Who's the, a contract has two people. 
Who's the contract there? You and the bank. You and the car dealer or the state of Nebraska. You and the person you bought the house from, the deed. This is maybe the most important thing I'm going to tell you tonight, other than the spiritual point. Your will is a contract. Now, who can I pick on that did a will? Anybody that did a will more than 10 years old? Oh, okay. Have you bought anything new since you did that will? Like a car or something? Okay. Um, if your will said it went to, you know, your children, and then you did the car, just the example we talked about, and put your girlfriend's name on it, because all your kids live out of state, and she's the one that helps you, and she drives you. You don't drive anymore because you're cataracts. She drives you. Okay. Your will was done 10 years before that car title. And then you die a few months after you've done that. Con so the, the will was done in uh, 2000. And it said everything goes to my five kids. And in 2012, you buy a new car and put your girlfriend's name on it. And then you die in 212. The will was done before that car title. And those kids say, that takes priority over that car title. We should get the car. Are they going to win or are they going to lose? They're going to lose. A will is a contract. The car title is a contract. Okay, when you buy a car... The contract was between you and Greg Young, and then it was ratified with the actual title that you were given at the Department of Motor Vehicles. That's a title. That's a contract. It's between you and the state, in effect, through the Department of Motor Vehicles, because they're going to verify your wishes that it goes to that, that girlfriend. You signed your will 10 years ago in the presence of your lawyer in his office or her office. A will is two, or a contract has two parties. Who's the second party to your will if it's a contract? If anybody gets this answer, I'm going to go home because you're a genius. No, but even my lawyer's group, it's hard to get them to understand this. This is a complicated question, but I want you to stop and think. You understand the premise. If I buy a car and get a car title, that car title says the state of Nebraska and... Jim Martin. That's a contract. You understand Jim Martin and the state of Nebraska are the two parties and the car is the item. I did a will in a lawyer's office 10 years ago. I'm the first part of the party of the contract. Who's the other party? Who? Jim. He's the one that wrote the will. Oh, he wrote the will. Yeah. That's not you. I can go home. <laughs> Why would you say that? No. Who said, didn't you say the state? Why would you say the state, Sue? Well, because the state's on it. No, we're talking about the will. But when does the state, they weren't in the lawyer's office when you signed. Was, was Governor, let's see, Governor Mike Johans in the, in the office when you signed the will? No. Signed that will, and that but you changed the state, state law. Too. I mean, what if you made your will in another state and you're in Nebraska? 
It's still it's still represented. You have to have two parties to make a contract. When you were in the law office with the lawyer and his witnesses, and maybe he notarized it, you were one party. Because it's under the laws of the state of Nebraska that that has to be drawn up. So yeah, but when does the state? The state is the second party. When do they sign your contract? When do they when sign the will? When you die. When you die. Thank you, Carol. It's a plus. When you die, that's when the state signs the contract that makes that validates the will. When do they do that? When the lawyer takes the will and the documentation down to the court, to the county court in the county in which you are domiciled. You could die in Phoenix, but if you're a resident of Douglas County, you know, Douglas County is where it's going to take place. And then they're going to see the will on its face appears to be valid. It's not in crayon. It's not in pencil. Uh, it's witnessed by two people, and it's called a will. And they're going to say on its face it looks valid. And they're going to admit it into probate and to appoint the person that you named in there to be your personal representative. Now, before 1978, we used to call that person the executor. And that word was better. Why? Because they were to execute, to carry out the terms of the contract. So the two parties to a will are you and the state of Nebraska operating through the county court. And so therefore, it's a long way to come to this principle. It's the last contract that is ever executed by you. Therefore, in terms of priority, to get back to my example with this lady, and the, and the will was done 10 years ago. She bought a car and changed what she wanted to see done with that car and then died a few months later. You would think that the will had priority. Uh-uh. It's not a contract until the second party signs off. Do you see? So it can't become a contract until you're dead. It's the last contract even though you signed it 10 years ago, 30 years ago, that is ever executed. Therefore, everything you do contractually until you die, unless it can be shown there was undue influence or fraud or you were mentally deranged and didn't have sound mind, takes priority over your will. That's why 25% of Americans do will, and I would venture to say at least half of those wills are worthless which is sad. Why? Because of this number one point. I should have put it in capital letters under number 4A. Titling must be coordinated. So you got all these different titles. One of the things we'll ask you to do when you come in, show us your deed, show us your bank statements, show us your statements from Merrill Lynch, show us your uh, car titles, all of these things so that we can coordinate those things. You're going to go do the work with what you want in the will. Because otherwise, we have a hodgepodge all over the place. You're, all those contracts that you signed take priority of what we say in the will. And that's why it behooves you to spend a little extra money and go uh, to a specialist. Because a GP, general practitioner, is normally just going to say, okay, what do you want? Because they're not making any money. They make money off of you when you die. Our philosophy as a specialist is to try and get your money's worth now. And we charge you more, but we did it done properly 
but we make you go through all of these questions and all of this work to verify that you've coordinated everything. Now, you can go mess it up afterwards. There's nothing I can do about it. But at least I make you go through the exercise to understand this point. So of everything we're going to talk about tonight, if you just go home and remember this one point, i got to look and make sure how my assets are actually titled and see if that coincides with what I've said in my will, then I will feel like I've done a good job. Then it's time to go see the lawyer and go back and say, what can we do to correct it? Or maybe like, oh, sure. What am I going to tell you most of the time? Go take all those people's names off. Have just your name and your husband's name. And everything, don't have anybody else's name on. There's a lot of danger in putting other people's names on anyway. First, especially capital assets like real estate. So if you put your name, a kid's name on, he doesn't get a stepped-up-in basis when you die. So he's going to pay a capital gain tax. And that goes up to 20 plus four, almost 24% next year, where he would get a step up and wouldn't pay if he sold the house, if he inherited it through the will. Secondly, uh, if, he, if you get mad at him, happens, and want your house back, he's got to quit claiming. If he doesn't, there's nothing you can do about it. And I've had that happen more often than... An, than once, so I know it's it can be a problem. You're still the boss if you just keep it in your own name. Uh, third, um, if it didn't go to him, if he didn't survive you, you may prefer that it went to a, a charity or to a friend. But guess what? If his name's on there and he dies with you in the car accident, where's it going? Probably to his wife. And you may not like your daughter-in-law. So you got all those different issues that you got to be careful about adding people's names. You think you're doing them a favor to avoid probate. And this is the main reason I don't like Susie Orman and these people, because they scare the heck out of people on probate. Probate in Nebraska, they talk about, well, you're 5%, 10% of all your money is going to go for probate. Well, that may be true in California, but in Nebraska, that would be called fraud. Nebraska is $43 to open an estate in county court and $24 to close. That's your probate fee. So where's the big fee in probate? The big fee in probate is the lawyer. In Douglas County, Sarpy County, this part of the state, we're not allowed, unless it's a really unusual case, to charge a percentage. We're only allowed to charge an hourly rate. Iowa lawyers, by statute, get a minimum of 2%. California lawyers get a minimum of 5%. So a million-dollar state in California the lawyer would get $50,000 by state law. In Iowa, 20000 In Douglas County, probably three or 4000 on an hourly basis. Now, in Columbus, I'm just handling one there, and the judge says, I can't determine by your hourly or by your cost here. It doesn't add up to 3%. And I said, no, Your Honor, I charge by the hour. And he says, well, I'll give you 3%. It was like $20,000 more. And I said, they were my clients. I don't consider that ethical. And he says, well, it's what we do out here. And I says, well, I'm from Omaha. We don't do it that way. Yeah. yeah. So it depends in Nebraska on what county you're living in, believe it or not. Once you get west of uh, uh, basically Wahoo, you're, you could spend 2 to 4% by, by area. So that's why my clients live in western Nebraska, McCook in those areas. We usually do living trust for them. Or if they lived in Omaha, we wouldn't, there would be no reason for us to do it just to avoid those extra costs. So that's, again, the nuances. Not only is Nebraska different than Iowa or California, but within counties we're different. And that's, that's why you have to understand that.
What, you had a question, Norma? No. No? Yeah. Probate laws, whatever, is in effect at the time you die. <clears throat> but there are always lawyers on fees. Uh, we'll get called in and do states in western Nebraska, and we don't charge by the hour. Because of, of computer and online, you can do almost everything online anymore. The old days where an Omaha lawyer wouldn't be worth it to go out to McCook or whatever, but I do them all over state, and I never leave my office. So that, that's one of the reasons that you, don't, you can get away with that. So it wouldn't matter. Yeah, Rich. There's reciprocity. You should have. You should always look when you move to a state permanently, just because of the nuances. But every state has reciprocity, so it's it's recognized as valid. Um, so, what are your choices for tiling? Go ahead, Dave. Yeah. No, no. What is your responsibility as, a, as an attorney if you pass away? How do those wills then pass to someone else who can exercise? That's a great question. Um, we we do keep executed copies, and executed copies can be admitted with affidavits that the original was lost and it wasn't intentional. But you have to go through a lot of extra steps. We just did one, and it, it's you can do it. Uh, happened to me. Yeah, that's why it's it's almost impossible to be a solo practitioner anymore. You know, we have four other lawyers in our office, and the last one we hired, we we said your the criteria for hiring it is that you're under forty. So, and healthy. yeah, and healthy. Do you take your vitamins? You know, we we once once a week we weigh them and make sure that everything's okay. <laughs> we try and find another one. We have a law clerk that we really are we're thinking we're going to all go together and hire him. He's really good, so that would help. He's only 26. <laughs> it is a responsibility. We have fireproof safe, uh, but we have, uh, we have to submit something to the, to, the, to the bar that we have a plan for succession and all that. So it is really important. And it's the main reason why we're paranoid and we never throw files away. <laughs> so... Some lawyers will say, I want to keep the original. You have a choice of filing the original in county court, and it costs, I think the county charges you $2 to store it. And so you can do that if you're worried about, you know, if you're dealing with a solo practitioner who's in his 80s, you know, either you keep it and put it in your safety deposit box or take it into the court, ask him to file it, and they'll get a receipt. <clears throat> so you can do that. Um, there's a lot of ways to protect. But it's, it's really important you have executed copies. In the old days, we would give copies to clients that weren't executed. Well, then you learn your lesson. So you get executed copies as well as original. What does that mean, executed 
signed, witnessed, notarized. Yeah, yeah. What's the procedure for including assets uh, that come to you after a will or trust is made up and including that? It's whatever you own at the time of your death. I'm sorry? It's whatever you own at the time of your death is your estate. You don't have to redo your will. Is that what you mean? Is that done through some kind of pour over? Uh, Are you talking about a living trust? Yes. If you did a living trust, uh, well, let, let's hold that question as I explain the titling, and I'll come to that. The choices you have to title your property are sole name. So when you buy your house, there's just your name on the deed. And if you have sole name, it means it's subject to the provisions of your will, and it'll go through probate. The second choice, so you're always the boss. Second choice is joint name, and joint name means that it has somebody else's name on it. Here, again, is a variance in state law. Nebraska says that if two names or more are on a piece, a uh, legal document, then it's presumed to be tenants in common, which you'll see that language under sole name category under this document, my page. And tenants in common means that if there's three people on that farm deed, all three own an undivided one-third interest. There's no survivorship. So if one of them dies, their share goes to whoever their heirs are rather than the other two people in that farm title. So Nebraska has a presumption that even if there's joint names, it's tenants in common. Unless there is some verbiage on the deed or the contract that would give uh, an unbiased, impartial third party, meaning the court, um, the proverbial purchaser for, for value, we call them, in real estate, that this was meant to be a joint tenancy deed with rights of survivorship. So like a deed, this is the number one mistake in real estate. That's why we asked to see the deeds to all your real estate. Not that we're calling you a liar, you don't know what it is, but we want to see the actual language. Just because there's two names on it doesn't mean it's joint. So the deed at the title should say survivorship deed or joint tenancy deed, or it could say warranty deed, but the title itself of the grantee would say Joe and Mary Smith, joint tenants with rights of survivorship. And you'll see the abbreviation under joint names, JT-WROS. If you look on your CDs at the banks and you made them joint, you'll see that language on there. So this is really important because there's a lot of you here, I would guess, that have joint property that really isn't joint. Okay, And so, therefore, you think it's going to go to your spouse and the real estate agent or the title company or the lawyer made a mistake when they did the deed. And on its face, it's legal. It's just it forgets that word survivorship. Or sometimes they'll do a negative. They'll say, not as tenants in common. You know, something to let the title company and real estate understand. Otherwise... The title company saying, go to court, go to probate, and settle it. So you want to check your deeds. So when the, if, the, if you're going to see a lawyer to do a will, and the lawyer sits down, and in 20 minutes you're done, ask for your money back. That's why you go, you know, it's, just, it's the same reason you see specialists in um, the medical field. This is not anything to play around with. This is not time for amateurs. And a lot of lawyers, when I do my seminars, will say, I'd have to charge them so much more I may lose them. So what? 
you lose a few clients, but you can live with your, I can sleep at night. I mean, Dave, this is one of the reasons I enjoyed working with Dave. We work with a common physician, and physicians uh, are not the easiest because they're always in a rush, and they really don't like to think. They're not great bookkeepers. They're not great, you know. And so uh, we have our hands full when we deal with, and then when they want something, it's generally, can I have it done yesterday? So it's it's difficult, and Dave and I have really had a pleasure of dealing with this family, and uh, and I enjoy dealing with Dave because he's he'll take his time and he's willing to talk over something. And one of the things that I like to do and Dave likes to do is what if. And Dave and I will go over hypotheticals. Well, what if he were to do this? Did we cover that? Did we think about that? You know, my partner was a retired judge, Lou Carnazzo, and he says the best thing you can do is don't take the Las Vegas approach to doing contracts, including wills. Don't assume the spouse is going to survive. Or just because the one spouse has terminal cancer and the other spouse is 10 years younger, that he, the terminal cancer one's going to die first. Don't assume that your daughter's going to survive you, your only child. Don't assume there's not going to be issues. So anticipate what ifs. And your will should have a plan A, like to my spouse, a plan B to my children, a plan C to my grandkids, a plan D to charity. You see what I mean? Uh, and that takes time. It takes, it takes effort to, to do this. And, and if you are fearful of death or you just not soon do it in the beginning, they'll come and see us and then we may never see them again. But at least it's not on my shoulders that, you know, I, I, I want to make sure we do it a good job. And that's the way Dave operates. So that's why we'll ask people, let us bring in all your contracts, bring your life insurance contracts, your annuities, your IRA contracts, so we can see how it's owned and so we can see how it's the beneficiary uh, designations. Now, to get your revocable trust, so the third way to own property, sole name, joint name, living trust. If you do a living trust, the number one mistake in living trust is they're not funded. So it's like you're buying a car and, and you're deciding, uh, should I buy a Ford or a Chevy? Should I do a will or should I do a living trust? Uh, I've written two books just on living trust. And I've given eight-hour seminars just on living trust, and I've already gone past my time. So I don't think you want to have any more on, on living trust. But living trusts are good. They're not the panacea. They're not the only way to go. Uh, they work in certain situations. In other situations, they don't work as well. You, your husband and wife can do a joint trust. You can do separate spouses' trusts. There's estate tax benefits to do separate ones if you have t estate tax problems. They have if you're gonna, if you got children that are uh, Down syndrome or uh, spendthrifts, and you want to continue a trust after you and your wife are gone, you know, for another 20 years or whatever, uh, or a Medicaid spendthrift type trust, you may as well do a living trust, even though technically you don't need one, because you're going to have might as well have the apparatus already in place. But living trusts aren't the end-all, be-all uh, that a lot of people like Susie sells them to be, like, boy, you're a real dummy if you don't have one. Um, they work for some people. They're double to triple the cost of wills. So we don't do them lightly. If you do them, we want to make sure you get your money's worth. But the number one mistake, even in the ones that are done, we probate living trust estates all the time. Why? Because the lawyer forgot to tell them or didn't help them in the beginning or give them, didn't give them the apparatus to understand you got to fund it. What does that mean? Well, if you do a will, 
you basically are going to take, think of your will as a car. You're basically going to take that car. It's going to have enough gasoline to get it home. You're going to stick it in your garage, and you're never going to drive it. Somebody else is going to drive it. It's not going to be used till you're dead. With a trust, it's like you bought a Chevy. Chevy's just as good as a Ford. But Ford will get you from A to point B to point C, just like a trust will. It's no different. It's just personal preference. But with the trust, you want it running, operating now. You're going to use it right now. It's not going to get stuck in a garage. Therefore, it's got to get funded. Well, if you want to think of the car analogy, think of every type of asset you have as one gallon of gas. So I got a house, that's one gallon. Two cars, there's three gallons. A bank account for it. Do you see what I mean? With a trust, you got to put all those assets into the title, the name of the trust properly, and you got to keep it funded. And if it's not funded or something's sitting out there at the time of death, we still have to go through probate. So it's really the onus is on, and so there's some clients that we won't let do trust and we'll pass up the extra money because we know the way they come in, they can't, they don't keep track of what they have now. They're not going to change, you know. And so we say, I, I don't, I, you've got to go someplace else because I know you're not going to keep it funded and I'm going to end up getting probate and I'm going to get double paid. It's just not ethical. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. So we'll turn down business because of that worry. So living trusts are, uh, are, are great instruments for the right person as long as they're funded. The other thing on – I've got to finish this, Norma, and then I'll take questions for who wants to stay. Beneficiary designation. This is a great way to help a charity. A lot of us in this audience are over, over 40. So, no, not that, not that couple back there. Those are my, those are my kids. Uh, maybe your, your kids have grown and you don't, that life insurance policy, they don't need it. Or the IRA, you know, so you leave your spouse as beneficiary and you name a manual fellowship as the second beneficiary. So if the spouse survives you, they keep the IRA. If the spouse dies before you or with you in a disaster, a manual fellowship gets it. How does that help you? How does that help the rest of your kids or the rest of your heirs? All the income taxes on that IRA, blown away. Charity doesn't pay any. Estate taxes, Nebraska, federal, nothing. So that entire IRA goes tax-free and it helps the charity. helps the manual right away. How did you do it? You called your insurance agent. You called your stockbroker, whoever you have, or your banker, whoever you have that IRA. Changed the second beneficiary from my children or my nieces and nephews to a manual fellowship. Or some people will say, I want to change. First beneficiary is my spouse. Second beneficiary, 50% to my two children, 50% to a manual fellowship. See how easy it is? Beneficiary designation is, is really important. Uh, do you know who your second beneficiary is on your, all your life insurance policies, your IRAs, your 401Ks, your annuities? Do you all know that? Good for you. Uh, insurance. Larry Quigley is going to talk about insurance, but insurance is a big component of estate planning. I always ask about your insurance policies and whether you're properly protected. We did a, a living trust for a husband and wife. It was about a $3,000 package. They had big farmland that was very sophisticated plan. They were in their 40s. They had inherited some, and it was just really, it took quite a while. We met with the insurance agent, the investment advisor, their accountant. Uh, we had a lot of sessions, and we got this beautiful plan set up. And the accountant and the insurance agent and I both said, you need a $2 million umbrella, and you need to add uninsured and underinsured Riders to it. They said, yeah, we'll go do it. They didn't do it. 
the husband, it's a true story, the husband uh, was in a car accident and uh, wasn't his fault, was a 16-year-old kid. And uh, as a result, the husband is paralyzed from the neck down and uh, can't farm. His bills at uh, Crate Medical Center were over $2 million. His house is inadequate for the type of wheelchair and all everything that has to be done. So their excess cash was used to make the house handicap accessible for his type of situation. He needs extra care. Uh, they came to us to sue the kid and his parents. And uh, guess what? Parents had just filed bankruptcy. They were living in a trailer. Was there witnesses? Yep. Was a police report on our side? Yep. Kind of a cut and dried case. How much did we win? None. So then what do you do? So I said to the wife, well, thank God you did your estate plan and got that insurance. She broke down and says, Larry, we were going to do it, and we never did it. Otherwise, what could they have done? They could have gone. We actually got 100000 out of their own uninsured policy, under their car insurance. That went to Creighton. Um, they could have gone under their umbrella policy, $2 million, and had an uninsured and underinsured rider put on, and what would they have gotten? $2 million. bucks. Now, what would that have mattered? We would have settled with Creighton. Hospitals will settle for 50 cents on the dollar, and then we would have had the money to, to handle. Otherwise, we had to file bankruptcy, and we lost the farm. So we would have been able to keep, do you see what I mean? For about uh, $800 a year in premium. So Larry will probably go into that, but that's what that umbrella means. So you can have a great estate and a great estate plan, and then look where it is. It's nothing because you didn't protect it with good insurance. So insurance is a key component. That's why my, my philosophy and Dave's philosophy is you sh your estate planning is done by a team, and you should have a lawyer, an accountant, an insurance agent, and a financial advisor. That's your team. If you want a banker involved, too, that's fine. But you've got to have a team approach so you get all of us talking to each other and what's best for you, for you, you know, so that everybody's on, on board. Uh, we talked about investments, business, farm. We'll skip over the retirement stuff. You can read those. Funeral planning. Uh, one of the great things a Christian steward can do is to plan their funeral, and Dave has someone who's going to come and talk to you about that and to relieve the grief and everything that's involved in that. It's just it's traumatic if you were to die suddenly and your child lives in Illinois and has to come back here. And Do we have a funeral home to pick out? Where do we bury you? Did you want to be cremated? Uh, all of those things. It's just, a, it's, it's just a way that you can relieve them of that stress. That's another act of being a good Christian steward. And the legal documents, the business continuation agreements, if you have a business so that the business can continue or be adequately liquidated, uh, the powers of attorney for health and finances, your will, and your trust. Uh, I wish I could talk to you for about an hour just on the health care power of attorney. I can't. It's a crucial document so that your wishes in, in, are made known. Um, Nebraska just a year ago changed their rules on guardianships and conservatorships. And we used to do filing and reports. Uh, there were about five pages, ten pages long. And we didn't even have to go to a court hearing. 
sometimes, if it was a complicated conservatorship, the lawyer would go in for a brief five-minute hearing, but the conservator wouldn't be required to come. And our fee would generally be 250 to 350 a year. It's all changed. Nebraska now, because there were cases in the World Herald where some caregivers uh, defrauded some people, and so because of a couple of stinkers, now the state has decided to punish everybody. So guardianship and conservators deals, the guardian conservator has to come to us, with us, to a formal hearing. And our fees have gone up to almost $2,000 a year where we would be charging $350. The judge in the first one I did says, are you sure that's enough, Mr. Dwyer? And I says, yeah, it's by the hour. And she says, well, I just did one for this firm downtown, and they were over 3000 This is really, I said, I know, but I just don't feel right. This is fine. Okay, what, is, what am I telling you this for? People worry about spending money going through probate. We're living longer. And what's going to happen is your family out of your pocket is going to spend a lot more if you don't have powers of attorney for health care and powers of attorney for property or a living trust to go through guardianships and conservatorships annually than you will ever go through probate. So make sure you have a properly drawn, you, even if you do a living trust, you need to have a pour over will and a pour over power of attorney for property. But if you don't have a trust, you still do a durable power of attorney for property and a durable power of attorney for health care. And within the durable power of attorney for health care can contain what we call living will provisions, end of life, so that, that you don't be kept on life support, you know, beyond the stage when there's a hope of, of recovery. You need to let your wishes be known. That also is an act of Christian stewardship. Uh, the estate pie gives you an idea. When you die, your, your estate is like a pie. And certain slices are going to be taken out against your wishes. You just assume they wouldn't be, but they are. Funeral bill, last illness, debts, probate costs, etc., taxes. Now, you can nullify those by paying your mortgage down, by not having a lot of credit card bets, by prepaying your funeral, by buying your cemetery plot or whatever, uh, by having good secondary health insurance, whatever. Uh, the key is to try and have the residue and the other area. Laundry list is for giving away household goods, bequest to charity, bequest to friends. Have that be the majority of your pie. So if you have good insurance, good investments, good funeral planning, all these other documentations, then the residue is going to be larger and you're going to leave a bigger part of the pie to your heirs. This is a neat chart. We don't have time to go over it, but this tells you the types of trust you can do. Uh, trust, any type of trust you want to do can be done either in a living document called a revocable or irrevocable trust, or it can be done in your will. So there's a couple of charitable trusts that you can do, and you can do them in your will which means testamentary. They don't take effect till you're dead. Or you can do them right now while you're alive and watch the charity handle your money and, and deal with the money you've given them and get the joy and the pleasure of seeing the chari charity benefit during your life. But this will tell you uh, the types of, of trust you can do, and it's just a simple diagram. The last two pages, I've got to skip over these very, very quickly. But do you, did you go over some of this, Dave, the gifts to charity? got to be to a qualified charity, okay, and there's the different types of gift. People are, if, you got, if any of you are farmers, you can give crops, you can give uh, equipment, machinery, china, silverware, um, 
when to make a gift. You can make it during life or you can make it on death. And uh, on death or the, the split interest gifts that we talked about where you don't want to give up the income interest right now. Uh, you'd like to have an income stream continued, but you'd like to have the property itself go to charity. These are the split interest gifts. The lead trust is what Jackie Kennedy is the most famous one where she gave the charity an income interest for 10 years. And then uh, John John and Caroline got the rest of this particular asset at the end of 10 years. Well, all the appreciation for that asset was taken out of the estate so that when uh, the 10 years were up, the charity had got a nice income stream for 10 years. And then they got this asset that was basically almost tax-free because of all the growth. That's called a lead trust. Very few people do that. Most people want to give the income interest directly to the kids during life. And then when the kids die or in 20 years, then the remainder goes to charity. And those are either an annuity trust or a uni trust, uh, depending on whether you want a set amount of money to come to you every year or you want a fixed percentage. Uh, and then this, uh, the last page is just a diagram of charitable remainder trust. I went over my time. I apologize. If anybody has questions, I'll stay. Assuming that Solomon uh, wrote Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, he would have been uh, an estate planner. What did he say? This is what he says. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That means grandchildren. Now, I, I want to include that in our will. And I don't want to name names, but I want these designations. Uh, so I would like some help there because uh, we have uh, four um, family, uh, four daughters that will be the main inheritors. And uh, a, a certain percentage of what they inherit, mm -hmm. I'm going to specify in the will, the, the their children will inherit, and that will be equally distributed about how many children are in each of these four families. Yeah, you, so that you, sounds complex. No, I just need to know how to word that a little bit. Well, it is. There are some complexity because of what's called the generation skipping trust that can come into it. So you're limited on skipping a generation uh, on what you can give without getting a separate 55 percent tax. So that's why it does complicate. As long as it's a smaller amount, it can be done. Some people will say, if I got four kids, I want to, I'm going to divide my share, my estate six ways. One share equally to each of my four kids, one share to these five charities, and one share to all these grandkids. So you can do something like that. Again, as long as the grandkids' share doesn't exceed $1 million. It's a generation-skipping problem. But other than that, it's it's easy to do uh, uh, within the within the confines of what I'm saying. Sure, but there's a lot of there's there's variations you can do. You just what you need to do when you see the lawyer is here's what I want to do, okay, and then we sit down and do what ifs, and then we work it out. Oh, if you had no Iowa and Nebraska are the same, as far as that. But there's, there's yeah. If you were Colorado or South Dakota, yes. But not not, not Iowa. Yeah. As long as it was properly registered. But 
that you're, that's a good example for doing why you would do a living trust when you got property, real estate in more than one state. Those are people you want to do a living trust. Uh, IRA will always be, if it's yours, you're the owner, and the beneficiary would be, like, rich. Your second beneficiary could get my kids equally. Uh, if you wanted the trust for the spendthrift or for the uh, the child that has the uh, problems, uh, that ha- that is special language. And, and because part of the Bush Tax Act is this inherited IRA that went to the next generation, and that may expire also in January, so we don't know about that. But getting inher- getting inherited IRA from from a trust is becoming really difficult because of Dodd Frank's in dealing with the banks. First National Bank won't do it. I guess I better not say too much more. We're on tape. Uh, it's very difficult. 